Welcome to the Econ Minute, where we try to bring the real world to economics and some economics to the real world. Along the way, you'll discover that this podcast is about more than economics, and it's about more than a minute. I'm Eric Fruits. I'm an economist based in Portland, Oregon. My day job is in economic consulting, where I serve as an expert witness in litigation. If you need an economic consultant, expert witness, or even a speaker at your next event, contact me through the econminute.com website and blog. That's econminute.com. Today, we'll talk about the lack of affordable housing as a self-inflicted wound caused by misguided policy. We'll also look at the important role income taxes play in attracting and keeping top-notch scientists in a state. Now, in addition to consulting, I'm also the editor of Portland State University's Real Estate Journal. And that means I get a clip from the Center for Real Estate's annual conference. And we'll begin this podcast with an excellent piece on the mysterious youth in our midst, the millennials. A generation, Generation Y, that is bigger than the baby boom, but still so little understood by so many. And this clip is great from the conference. I walked away and thought to myself, wow, I am glad I got up for this speech. Matt Edlin oversees acquisitions and developments in the Midwest and East Coast for girding Edlin's various investment funds. Matt is responsible for sourcing, negotiating, and executing on investment opportunities across key urban markets within these regions. In about 10 minutes, Matt provides insights to the millennial generation that even the best market research firm cannot or will not provide. So, without further ado, here's Matt. Hi, uh, my name is Matt Edlin. I'm with Gerding Edlin, and, and I want to kind of start out with kind of my context and my lens for, uh, I guess, our discussion today. Um, I run, or I, I work with a team that focuses primarily on our fund strategy, which really looks at four urban areas, many of which Leanne talked about, uh, across the West Coast, the East Coast, and the Midwest, that are quote-unquote youth magnet cities. These are cities that are urban in nature, that are uh, places that are diverse, that are uh, trans-oriented that are highly educated, they're poised for high growth, they're 24-7 living environments, they're dense, they're community-based, they're diverse, they're progressive. And as a result, where you see a, a very substantial portion of our generation moving, this is where a lot of great jobs are. We've invested quite a bit in this strategy. But what I want to talk to you today about is merely observations, observations of this business strategy that we've seen across the country and kind of that lens in which we are looking at how we design our, our residential and commercial buildings across the country. There's a, uh, there's this, it's like Gen Y, it's like the first rule of Fight Club. You don't talk about Fight Club. We have this, we have this feeling like we don't really like when people talk about us because we are diverse. We are different. We, we, we come from different. We come from, from, from different experiences, and, and as a result, we can't be boxed up. At least we feel we can't be boxed up. So I'm going to give you a bit of observational knowledge from, from what we're seeing. And I want to start in three different areas. First is hashtag Gen Y and the influence of the experiential. The second, Gen Y and community. And the last, Gen Y and their folks. Fist bump. Gen Y and the influence of, of the experiential. This 
is some of the projects we've done over the last 10 years, all seen through a very unique lens and a very unique viewpoint. It's seen through their pets. It's seen through the, the people living around them, their, their new neighbors, their old friends. It's seen through the, the bike ride they took through the new neighborhood that they just moved to. It's, it's seen through these experiences, these very unique experiences. That is really shaping the way that this generation is seeing the world around them. And within that, there are some key factors. Number one, and I would argue that this is by far the most important lens that we look at as we, as we look to design our spaces, and that is authenticity. This is a generation that feels that they can call BS on everything that feels inauthentic. It's the reason why I would prefer to go to an oven and shaker or a pizza shoals than go to Domino's. It's the reason why, unfortunately, P.F. Chang's doesn't do as well as, say, a Pock Pock. These are places that feel authentic. They're authentic in their approach, how the customer is met. It's authentic in the materials used in this space. They feel comfortable. They feel natural. They feel, they feel real. We're designed for it. We grew up in an era of HGTV. We saw the Property Brothers do some pretty incredible things over the last few years, and we feel like we too can have the same exact thing. Design is important, and design through authenticity is absolutely critical. Event-based. We like to experience the real estate. It's a try-before-you-buy kind of a scenario. And as we look to engage our customer with the spaces that we want them to live or work in, we invite them to come and join. Come, come experience it. Brand conscious. As Leanne said, we are extremely brand conscious. Brand conscious about ourselves, but brand conscious in who we like to buy from. We need to see a sense of values and a sense of connection back to the product. We, as a company, sustainability is a big piece of our business. And what we've learned is that it's not simply the sum of the parts that make the building more efficient, that make it really sustainable. And that's not really what resonates with this, with this group. It's, it's, it's something more. It's about giving them the opportunity to, to touch, to feel, to experience, to understand the tangible effects of that. It's like putting Nest thermostats. We're putting Nest thermostats in our projects now. And we've worked with a company called MyEnergy.com that allows people to see in real time how they're performing, not just themselves, but against the guy who lives above them or the woman who lives down the hallway. And it's a great opportunity to employ things like gamification, opportunities to, to compete against one another. But it's an experiential understanding of sustainability that translates much further. Last, aspirational. Brand, design, all of those aspects, all these things that kind of come up to make this experience unique, in many ways we wish to aspire to something more. It's, it's, about, it's about designing to an elevation that's a little bit higher than a 25-year-old or a 27-year-old. We want to feel like, you know, we've got a nice glass of wine and not just a glass of Franzia. We aspire to something more. Gen Y and community. You know, we talked earlier about unit sizes getting smaller and community spaces being more open. I would argue, and again, through the lens of authenticity and through the lens of experience, that public spaces need curation. And curation is absolutely critical to formulating what I believe is real authentic community, real connections between people living and working together. 
That's how you can curate your lobby. Instead of making it a space that you walk through to get to your unit, make it into a place where you can stop and connect. Connect not just with one another, but with the people at large. Fitness. Fitness today is, is, is about a communal experience, not just you just pumping iron. It's about you connecting with the people you're around. Food, wine, all of these things. If you focus, and what we've really spent a lot of time looking at is focusing on turning people inward towards one another, developing real authentic community, I can build a thousand great features, and Peter can go build two thousand great features, and guess what? The one thing, we, we, we may have checked all the boxes, you got the community room, you got the bike storage, you got all this thing, but you can never replace, for me, you can never replace the person who lives next the person who lives above me or lives below me or lives down the hallway, you can never replace that. And those commu- that community is critical. Some of the spaces we've designed over the years being used in a way that really works to facilitate those connections. Last why, Gen Y and their parents. How many baby boomers do we have in the room? Thank you. As Leanne said, we love you. We love you guys. And we are integrally connected to you guys in ways that I don't think you know. And, in, and, and I pose this as we kind of lead on to the next part of the conversation. I will be curious to see how these, 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 this connection that we have, this barbell generation effect, how those two really translate. A couple of value sets here. Baby boomers. Value, individual choices, community involvement, self-actualization, health, wellness, Adaptive, goal-oriented, confident in tasks, avoid conflict, collaborative and group decisions. Ironically, Gen Y, self-expression, individuality, health and wellness. Adapt rapidly, collaborate in group decisions. It is not a mystery that these, that these, these generations have shared values. And it will be very interesting to see how those shared values translate into us going forward. This is a little bit, this is our family here. So as, as we move, as our Facebook feeds show a little less Coachella and a little more engagement parties and weddings and babies being born, um, we're going to start to see, I think, some of these values really start to affect this generation. We do want to own homes. We want to have kids. We grew up in families that were both traditionalist as well as progressive. We saw our parents create industries and create businesses and, and and, and, and we were awe-inspired and continue to be. And as you see, in fact, half the people in that video, I know because they've started up great companies. So young guys, you know, not Mark Zuckerberg yet, but they could be. And they want, they want to be able to be in control of their destinies. And we feel like we can be because we were inspired to do so. It will affect family life. It will affect where we choose to live going on in the future. But hearken back that there are still some inherent values, authenticity, community, that are really going to be important. Uh, last thing I'll leave you is, is, is there is a point of convergence, ironically, where, where you're starting to see the young, I hate to say it, but the old, come together, <laughs> where those values are coming back. For example, my folks and I, we lived in the same building, and it wasn't because I got free babysitting from them. It was because <laughs> the lifestyle of the building really fit both of us. It, it met us both in a really unique place, and we're starting to see that as we look forward. I'll turn it over to the next group. Thank you, guys. Walk up and down the East Coast and the West Coast and even in places in between and you'll see that the property market is really heating up. But also take a stroll through these housing markets along the East Coast and the West Coast and many places in between and you'll hear a lot of people talking about what they call affordable housing. Now during the housing boom, incomes were growing fast, 
but home prices and rents were actually growing faster. And because housing prices were growing faster than income, conversations turned to the lack of affordable housing. Throughout the housing bust and the associated recession, rental rates continued to rise while home prices dropped. But because incomes dropped and credit froze up, the affordable housing conversation continued. Now, the economy's in recovery. Home prices are rising and so are incomes. But yet again, home prices are rising faster than incomes. So even the recovery won't make affordable housing problems go away. Now, the Portland area in Oregon is a curious case where land use policies have actually thrown gasoline onto the affordable housing fire. A recent report from Oregon Public Broadcasting said that Portland has a shortage of about 20,000 affordable housing units. Now, that's a lot. They say that about 30,000 very low-income households in Portland should be spending in the ballpark of about $500 a month or less on housing but only about 10,000 units are available in the city within that price range. That gives us a shortage of 20,000 units. That's about 10% of the total housing units in the city. But it looks like things are only going to get worse. Oregon has some pretty interesting land use laws that severely limit the expansion of residential development to outlying areas. We don't have the sprawl that you see in other places. The result is a region where development is limited to a virtual island surrounded by agricultural and natural resource uses. Because the development cannot spread out, it must spread up. And when consumers don't want to buy into the high-rise density, single-family and low-density residential housing prices have only one way to go. And that way is up, up, and up. Jerry Mildner, who's the director for the Center of Real Estate at Portland State University, notes that the local government's application of the state's land use law is only what he says pay lip service to housing affordability. His analysis finds that under current land use policies in the state of Oregon, by 2035, so about 20 years from now, Portland area's rents will rise to what he thinks will be roughly equal to the levels in Los Angeles, San Diego, or San Francisco. And he says that will erode an important comparative advantage for the region. One of our advantages here in Portland is that we have relatively cheap housing until now and into the future. And that's why it's been noted that declining housing affordability is often a self-inflicted wound caused by misguided policies. There's an old saying in economics, and it goes like this. If you want less of something, tax it. That's one reason why we have things that we call sin taxes. The hope is that a high enough tax on things like liquor, tobacco, or even in places like Portland and and other places in the West, marijuana, hopefully those taxes will reduce consumption of what we call sinful products. But take it a step further, and you could think that one way to have fewer rich people would be to tax higher incomes at a higher rate. But surprisingly, there's actually a rip-roaring debate in economics and policy circles about whether this basic rule of economics that if you want less of something, tax it, actually applies to something as simple as income taxes. On the one hand, there's a huge body of evidence that differences in income taxes are associated with the migration of individuals, especially high-income individuals, from high-tax areas to low-tax areas. And even if you don't look at the migration, the rich are much more able to shift their income through time and space to minimize their own tax bills. So when we try to tax the rich, the rich can often find a way to run. 
On the other hand, Warren Buffett once claimed that he's never worked with anyone who has ever mentioned taxes as a reason to give up an investment opportunity that Buffett had offered him. Well, now, a working paper recently distributed by the National Bureau of Economic Research seems to support the traditional view that if you want less of something, tax it. The authors look at what they call star scientists. This is who, what they, who they define as scientists with a large number of patents, so large that they are in the top 5% of those with patents. Now, based on their patent applications, the researchers identify the scientist's state of residence in each year over a number of years. So with that information, the researchers can see whether a scientist has, scientist has moved, which state they moved from, and which state they moved to. Then, the authors link that information with data on each state's top tax rates for individuals and for businesses, and statistically analyze if the taxes played a role in the move from state to state. Now, the results are interesting, but not entirely surprising. They indicate that tax rates are a factor, in attracting and keeping top scientific talent. In fact, star scientists' moves from state to state are sensitive to changes in the top marginal tax rate on individuals. A lot of these star scientists tend to be, tend to be fairly rich. But the corporate income taxes affect state-to-state -state moves only among the private sector star scientists. In other words, there's no significant impact among academic and government researchers. Now, one argument is, is that their pay among the government and the academic circles isn't dependent on their scientific inventions. And so they are less sensitive to the tax rates. So let's just count this as another piece of evidence that if you want less of something, tax it. And it even implies to the propeller heads that we call top scientists. Thanks for listening to the Econ Minute podcast, where we try to bring the real world to economics and some economics to the real world. I hope you enjoyed it. Please visit the Econ Minute blog at econminute.com. That's econminute, all one word, econminute.com. And it's daily updates. You can also contact me through the blog or just email info at econminute.com. So drop in next week for the latest Econ Minute.